0: Crossroads in our democracy. We're at a key crossroads. And we cannot underestimate the power of hate. We cannot underestimate the power of that divisiveness and the centering and the vitriol and all of that. We cannot underestimate that. And that is why we need to nominate someone with a political revolution at their back, with decades of. Org- and bring us to this moment. It is not going to be any one candidate that defeats Donald Trump. It's going to be a movement of Americans that defeat Donald Trump in rejection of hatred and embracing
1: of love. Didn't you want to start your morning with a communist? Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. I'm not the communist. Oh, they're rallying for Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire today. Hey, we'll actually know who won New Hampshire tonight because they're competent, unlike the Democratic Party of Iowa. Welcome. The phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877 97 Eric, E-R-I-C-K, or 877-973-7425 is the phone number. That was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez campaigning for Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire. I want to spend, because today is really the first real day of voting. It is the first in the nation primary. Let me review the ballot for you. On the Republican side, um, you you got Donald Trump and several other people who are running. uh, But on the Democratic side, I got to read you this ballot. You will not know half these people, three quarters of these people you'll have never heard of. Some of them, you will recall, have dropped out of the race, and yet they're still on the ballot. This is the ballot in the actual order that the names appear. I don't know how the names appear on the ballot in New Hampshire. Uh, it, it looks somewhat alphabetical, except it's not, and there are clusters of candidates. Uh, I, I'm Honest to goodness, I've got no idea how they put the ballot together unless they kind of drew letters and, and lumped everybody in letters. It's weird, but, but here you go. Uh, number one on, on the ballot, uh, Julian Castro. Uh, Rock De La Fuente, John Delaney, Jason Dunlap, Michael Ellinger, Tulsi Gabbard, Ben Gleiberman, Mark Stewart Greenstein, Kamala Harris, Henry Hughes, Amy Klobuchar, Tom Kuz, Lorenz Kraus, Rita Kravitsky, Raymond Michael Mora's, Deval Patrick, Bernie Sanders, Joe Sestak, Sam Sloan, Tom Steyer, David John Thistle, Thomas John Thorgensen. maybe he's a relative, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Robbie Wells, Marion Williamson, Andrew Yang, Michael Bennett, Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Mosey Boyd, Steve Bullock, Steve Burke, and Pete Buttigieg, or you can write someone in. Those are the candidates on the ballot in New Hampshire today. Uh, I want to, just out of curiosity here, Rita Kravetsky for president. Who is Rita Kravetsky? That name stands out. She is Citizen's Count. Uh, who, who the heck is Rita Kravetsky? My, oh, and she's she's on the Colorado ballot as well, you should know. My goodness gracious, who are all these people who are running for president of the United States? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, remember that whole thing? I mean, it turned out to be a scam, and I had a friend who who his parents did it for him where you could pay money, and they would name a star after you, and it went into the International Star Registry, and you got a big fancy certificate, and and people would do that for you because— they, they wanted you to know that they loved you, and so you can point out the star. you got no freaking idea where it is in the sky. You just kind of point up there and say, hey, that's my star. You, you see that one, the little bright twinkly one, and people are like, oh, yeah, I, I, and they don't know which star you're pointing to unless you get out your laser pointer, and even then they don't really know. But say, hey, that's my star. They named it for me. And they didn't really I mean you got this fancy certificate but your parents were scammed and they didn't know better I feel like that's what this ballot is in, in New Hampshire is is instead of going to the international star registry and naming a star after someone the kids get together and say hey mom we put you on the ballot in New Hampshire because we love you we, we want you to be famous and and their name gets out there nobody has any idea who is Rita Kravitsky I have no idea uh so let's see uh <laughs> This is the, the citizenscount.org website. There is very little public in, information about Kravetsky's campaign at this time. She's from New Jersey. She hasn't filed with the FEC. I don't know about you, but that sounds like viable candidate to me. And yet she's on the ballot. All of these people are on the ballot. We, we have no earthly idea. She's also on the ballot in Colorado. I mean, it sounds like her kids really love her. They did a whole ballot initiative for Rita Kravetsky. Good for her. I would vote for Rita Kravetsky if I were in New Hampshire just because. Uh, In fact, I'm going to tweet that out right now. So unprofessional of me. Rita Kravetsky for president or some such. I guess her kids put her on the ballot because they love her or something. No idea. That's my tweet. I have no idea. I I mean, I'm seeing these names on the ballot. I'm like, who the heck are these people? Well, anybody can file, and if you can pay the fee you can file and get on the ballot in New Hampshire. And so all these people did. There were a bunch of people on the Republican ballot in, in New Hampshire as well that you have never heard of beyond the whole Joe Walsh. Um, and uh, Donald Trump and, and Bill Weld are up there on the ballot. Uh, so you got all these people up there too on the Republican side. And again, uh, people, you can you can put their name on and, and you can go check it out. You can see who's on the ballot. Now, all of that is to say there are really only a few viable candidates. So on the Republican side, the viable candidate on the Republican side is a guy named Donald Trump. You might have heard of him. On the Democratic side, there are a few viable candidates, and they're having a real hard time deciding who they are. Now, I I, I want to read you. Uh, a buddy of mine just sent me this link. Here are the people on the Republican side, Just just so you know. Uh, Rocky De La Fuente, Rick Kraft, Donald Trump, Starlock, uh, Robert Ardini, Eric Merrill, Stephen Comley, Bob Eli, Zoltan Istvan, uh, Matthew John Matern, uh, R. Body from Georgia, President R. Body from Georgia no less, Larry Horn, Bill Weld, Juan Payne, Joe Walsh, William Murphy, Mary Maxwell. Joe Walsh, of course, has suspended his campaign already. Uh, and of course, that there are um, there are right in candidates. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, for example, has won in Dixville Notch. They had five people who got up at midnight and they went and cast the votes. All five of them wrote in Mike Bloomberg. Meanwhile, Amy Klobuchar is is going up. I recognize this name: Zoltan Istvan Yurko. Professionally known as Zoltan Istvan, is an American transhumanist, journalist, entrepreneur, and futurist. Formerly a reporter for the National Geographic Channel, Istvan now writes futurist transhumanist secular and politically-themed articles for major publications. He's widely perceived as one of the world's most influential transhumanists and believes transhumanism will grow into a mainstream social movement in the next decade. None of us know what the hell transhumanism is. He apparently had announced in November that he was going to run against Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. In 2018, he ran as a governor for California under the Libertarian Party. And this guy's on the ballot. What is transhumanism, you're asking? According to Wikipedia, an international philosophical movement that advocates for the transformation of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies to greatly enhance human intellect and physiology. It's like Scientology for the rest of us. Sounds like it. Now, I'm I'm a little bit flippant here. And I realize that today is the day that the voting begins in New Hampshire. It is worth actually spending some time with you, though, on the way this is probably going to play out for the Democrats. They, I mentioned yesterday they are getting a little bit antsy about this. And the reason is because Iowa and New Hampshire, for the Democratic Party, have tended to follow a pattern of the Great Winnowing. Now, what I mean by the Great Winnowing is that the Democrats, in after Iowa and New Hampshire, tend to see a great multitude of candidates begin to drop out. Some of these candidates have already dropped out. If you go back to the ballot, uh, Julian Castro dropped out, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, they've already suspended their campaigns. They're on the ballot there. You can still vote for them, but they've already suspended their campaigns, much like Joe Walsh on the Republican side. Uh, But the problem is not enough of the major candidates. I mean, let's be honest here. Uh, a, a Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and John Delaney and the like, they were never really big candidates anyway. The big candidates have always been Sanders and Warren and Biden and Buttigieg and now surprisingly, Amy Klobuchar. Klobuchar, you should know, yesterday did an interesting contrast with Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg has said that uh, you can't be pro-life and be a Democrat And Bernie Sanders has come out and said the same thing, and Elizabeth Warren has said the same thing. Amy Klobuchar was approached by a reporter in New Hampshire yesterday and asked if you could be pro-life and be a Democrat, and she said, yes, you could, and then began to talk to this person about her work on the adoption caucus in Congress, on making adoption more affordable. Now, she's— She's pro-choice. She defended abortion as a woman's right, but she was willing to engage with this person, tell them they're welcome in her party, which is actually kind of interesting because she was also the one candidate on stage who said it would be bad to have a socialist running uh, for president as the Democrat. She actually said last night that she liked Bernie Sanders. She was friends with Bernie Sanders, but uh, Bernie Sanders was not a candidate that they should have as a front runner in the race. So how is New Hampshire going to play out today? This is why it's problematic for the Democrats. You've got waiting in the wings Mike Bloomberg with his billions of dollars. He is spending now more money than all the candidates combined, and I include Donald Trump in that. All put I mean just just this blow your head. Mike Bloomberg on TV and radio advertising is spending more money than every other presidential candidate of both parties combined. Bill Weld, Joe Walsh, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, all of them combined. Mike Bloomberg is spending more money, and, and it's working. For, for people who say you, you can't buy an election, he, he's buying an election. He's spending so much money, he's now up at 14% of the polls, and he's at 14% of the polls because he spent all this money on on, on campaign ads. You hear him on your probably your local radio station. You see him on Fox News. He's running them everywhere. He's not micro-targeting. He's just doing a big, broad Uh, pictures. He's doing big, broad ads. He's doing big, broad statements of his candidacy, many of them on gun control, which is interesting. He's running those on conservative talk stations and on Fox News. He thinks that message works. Uh, He's got some problems, and the opposition research is starting to drip, drip, drip out about Bloomberg. We'll get into that. There's some pretty damning audio from Bloomberg that's come out uh, from his time as mayor. But along the way, You've got the rise of Bernie Sanders and the fall of Joe Biden. In the polling averages in New Hampshire right now, Joe Biden is in third place. The New York Times has a big graphic on their website today about it, um, that that Joe Biden is in third place in the polling averages, and Amy Klobuchar is skyrocketing and may actually throw him off. Joe Biden is falling. The polling averages are a little bit behind. Joe Biden could finish in fifth place tonight. If Joe Biden finishes in fifth place tonight, he should drop out. But remember, he's invested heavily in a firewall in South Carolina and a Nevada caucus, Hispanic and black voters. Black and Hispanic voters, though, are in free fall from him, and they're moving towards Mike Bloomberg, which probably explains why the opposition research about Bloomberg is coming out. I got to play you the Mike Bloomberg opposition research. This has dropped – And uh, there are a lot of Democrats online who are seeing this Mike Bloomberg opposition and they're thinking, uh, Houston, we got a problem. Why? Because Donald Trump is making a huge play for black voters. And when you hear the Bloomberg audio that dropped and you contrast that with the president's ads on criminal justice reform, You can see the Democrats have a problem. By the way, I will take your calls if you got questions about the New Hampshire primary or anything like that. Uh, Feel free to call in 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. When we come back, y'all, call your friends, call your family, call your neighbors, tell them to turn on the radio. I've got this audio of Mike Bloomberg. you got to hear this. All right, here is the polling average from Yeah, we'll get to the Bloomberg thing in just a minute. We'll get to the Bloomberg thing. Here here it is. Uh the polling average, the final polling average. Uh Sanders 26, Buttigieg 20, Biden 14, Warren 13, Klubachar 8. Uh Tulsi Gabbard is at 4% and uh, Andrew Yang, I guess, it is, does he even have a... Yeah, yeah? Gabbard and Yang are tied at four, Steyer at three, uh, Deval Patrick and Michael Bennett at 1%, and, and things are shaping up there. But again, you've got Bloomberg. Bloomberg is just pouring money into the race, uh, and and you've you got a massive outpouring of this money. Tom Steyer has spent $17.8 million, in New Hampshire on ads, and he's only getting 3% in the polling. Bernie Sanders has spent $5.3 million, Buttigieg $3.6 million. Uh, Joe Biden has only spent $305,000, uh, on ads in New Hampshire, which is amazing. Now we got to get to the Bloomberg audio. Uh, someone uncovered the Bloomberg audio, uh, a 2015 speech where Bloomberg was defending his stop and frisk policy in New York city. This is making the rounds among Democrats this morning who are rather panicked by it. 95%
0: of your murders. Murderers and murdered victims. fit one MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city in world. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of those people that get killed. So you've got to spend the money, put a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is, which means in the minority neighborhoods. So this is one of the uninfected. And the consequences is people say, oh, my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And look, the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is uh, to throw them against the wall and, and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't, want that. I don't want to get caught. So they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it at home.
1: Now, that sounds somewhat garbled. Let me explain to you. This is undercover audio, someone recording Bloomberg, where he's saying that they target black communities in New York and they put all of the police there and they arrest the kids who have marijuana in their pockets because the kids who have marijuana in their pockets, if they're black, tend to also have guns and they can throw them against the wall, uh, sp- make them spread their arms and legs and frisk them and find the guns and confiscate the guns uh, and arrest them. And that pretty soon, if you keep doing this, they will stop carrying their guns on the streets and, and random targeting of young black men, uh, particularly for marijuana possession, thinking that they also have a gun. This is not going over well with Democrats, given the the conversations that are out there. And it, it's very interesting here because Joe Biden now is, is making a strong play for black voters to save him. This is Biden talking to Don Lemon last night on CNN.
2: You know the history if you lose these two you, the chances are you go on you can't win the other ones you don't believe but you that? also know the history the only people who ever won are people who have overwhelming support in the African-American community yeah so there's two thin p- pieces here and the idea that uh, that you're gonna anybody can be able to call a race between now and the end of and tomorrow and tomorrow night is just ridiculous the idea that you know we're just gonna get into the meat of things in uh, in, uh, in the next uh, three weeks so I think it's just, uh, and I've honestly believed, Don, from the beginning, I think we talked about it, you know, you got to look at the first four and see where you are after that. Yeah. So you, you know, let's talk about that. You, you, you mentioned the support among African-Americans. You, you do have overwhelming support. But in the last poll, it showed it's, it's fallen like at 50%. So without that, yeah, in the Quinnipiac poll, it's gone from 49% in January now to 27%. Well, that's the only poll that shows that. I don't think that's. You I think, think that's, that's an, an outlier. I think it's an outlier. I so, do. if that, but if that is, in, if that indeed happens, what's your path to victory then? My path to victory is Super Tuesday, and whether or not I can look, the next person, the the, the next nominee is going to have to be able to win in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Arizona, in places that we haven't won in a while. And uh, not a while. We didn't win last time. And all the polling data, unless something's changed overnight, shows I win there. I'm I'm the the strongest candidate there. For example, just since uh, Iowa, the African, the black caucus in Michigan spontaneously in the legislature endorsed me. A whole lot of endorsements have come forward just since just since after New Hampshire. We're raising about three hundred and fifty thousand bucks a day this month online. So I don't I don't get a sense that there's any of that that kind of penny was on the phone today with the South Carolina team. They feel good. I feel good.
1: He's making his last stand in South Carolina. Biden is not going to drop out after New Hampshire, no matter how bad the showing, because he's pretty sure he can rebound in South Carolina. And by the way, you know, there are so many candidates out there and there's so much instability in the Democratic ranks. He doesn't really need to. Uh, drop out largely because he can make this stand in South Carolina and and see what black voters do for him there and Hispanic voters in Nevada as well. And that again stretches out the Democratic primary. There is a danger to what's happening and Democratic strategists are mindful of it and they're increasingly concerned about it. I'll tell you what it is when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here. You can call in, be a part of the program, 877-973-7425. nine seven three seven four two five. We're talking about New Hampshire. The frustrations of the uh Democratic consultants right now is that their candidates and, and you need to understand this that there are there are warning signs that abound for President Trump in twenty twenty. Uh, they shouldn't be overstated, and some people are overstating them, uh, but they are things that the campaign does have to be mindful of. For example, uh, in all of the head-to-head matchups right now, President Trump in major polling is behind nationally than all the Democratic candidates. But in tw- 2004, George W. Bush was in the same situation, and George W. Bush won with over 50 percent of the vote. But there is one data point that is concerning. When you talk to Republican consultants and analysts, there's one data point that does really concern them. And it's that all of the Democratic candidates combined have raised more. And this excludes Bloomberg because Bloomberg isn't actually taking any money. um, All of the Democratic candidates combined have raised more money than President Trump. And that has not happened except in times where the incumbent is defeated. So, for example, in 1992, Bill Clinton and the Democratic candidates raised more money than President Bush. And that was a big warning sign for President Bush in 1992 that he was going to lose. There's a problem, though. And this is the, the Democratic concern. This is my tease before the break to, to tie you over. The problem is is that because the field isn't consolidating, because candidates aren't dropping out, everyone is in and spending money longer, and they're increasingly spending it against each other. If you will recall, go back to those early godforsaken debates of this Democratic primary season that were happening last year, and none of the Democrats, with the exception like you'd have Kamala Harris go after Joe Biden— Somebody would go after Biden or somebody would go after Sanders, but it was never really a big thing. They would go after the president and go. they would would keep their attack on the Republicans and the Republican agenda and the president and support impeachment. Well, now that the voting has begun and the field is still very clustered together, they've begun to savage each other. They're going after each other. And they're having a real hard time of it because they're all piling on Bernie Sanders at this point. And Pete Buttigieg as well. They are, they're firing on all sides. And Bernie Sanders continues to dominate. And what they don't understand about Sanders is that Sanders has a, a, base of support the uh, none of the other candidates have the base of support that sanders has to the extent that that biden has a base of support it is premised on the fact that he is barack obama's vice president and the one who can most likely beat donald trump but he can't continue to say that if he can't continue to win in the democratic primary if biden can't win elections it's really hard for him to say he's the guy who can win the election and Bloomberg is starting to steal support from him. But Bloomberg isn't stealing support from Sanders. Sanders is the one candidate who is immune from Bloomberg's money because his base of support is so loyal. But it's becoming a problem. And, and Sanders, of course, is now going after Bloomberg. You know, right now you
3: have Mayor Bloomberg running. Some people look at him as the solution. Is he part of the solution or is he part of the problem when you talk about big money in politics?
0: Well, I think you're exactly right. He's part of the problem. Look. Bloomberg, anybody else in America has the right to run for president. But I think in a democracy, you do not have the right to buy the president, presidency. And it really is absurd that we have a guy who's prepared to spend already many hundreds of millions of dollars on TV ads. Meanwhile, he did not do what all of the other Democratic candidates do. He wasn't holding town meetings in Iowa or in New Hampshire, Nevada or South Carolina. Those were not important enough for him. You could simply buy the election with hundreds of millions of dollars of ads. That is wrong. That is the basic fundamental problem of American society is that billionaires have extraordinary wealth and power over the economic and political life of this country. And that's what we're fighting to end.
1: Bloomberg is going to have this attack. And, you know, honestly, I think the data shows that most Democratic voters just want to beat Donald Trump and they don't care how they do it. The irony here is, for all the lectures against Republicans about how they they've sold out to Donald Trump, they they've abandoned their core values. Uh, the Democrats have for years believed money in politics is a bad thing. Democrats have for years believed we need publicly funded campaigns. Democrats have now for years been railing against billionaires, and here comes a billionaire to try to snatch the Democratic nomination. And, it, of course, the media will never play up the Democratic hypocrisy in a way they would play up the Republican hypocrisy, but it's there. Now, what of the candidates? I I, I want to spend a few minutes, and, and listen, I realize— uh, Very few of you who are listening will be voting in a Democratic primary, but I think it's really important for those of you who aren't Democrats to understand the lay of the land of the Democrats, because uh, one thing we can do here is analyze the situation and see the trajectory and kind of understand how campaign 2020 is going to take shape. And the way you have to do this is to begin with these candidates in New Hampshire, rebounding out of Iowa You've got Buttigieg and Sanders in the lead. Buttigieg won the most delegates in Iowa, even though Sanders had more people show up. Uh, Sanders' team is handling it respectfully, but Sanders' supporters are livid with Buttigieg. Buttigieg has now rocketed into second place in New Hampshire in the polling averages. Klobuchar has real momentum. She's up to 8 percent. Joe Biden is declining rapidly as people are beginning to write in Mike Bloomberg. So what is the stay of play here? Well Sanders has a core base of support. Sanders is increasingly viewed as a as an option by black voters as well. You need to understand that. And that is Buttigieg's weakness. Mayor Pete, by the way, can can we just all acknowledge that if Pete were to become president, he would be the smuggest president To ever win the presidency, he would be more insufferable than Barack Obama. I would I I think I would rather take a Bernie Sanders presidency than a Pete Buttigieg presidency, because the the media and the smugness that would come out of Washington, D.C. with Pete in the White House would just be unbearably smug and just awful. And uh, he really is a a thing white people like. Uh, In fact, in in the Quinnipiac polling, he now gets, I mean, this is good news for for Pete. He gets 4% of black support. He had been at 0% black support. He's now at 4% black support. But there's a problem, of course, is that the margin of error in black support in the Quinnipiac poll is 6%. So he could still be getting negative 2% of black support. I mean, he, he could be running a deficit in black support. Uh, he could be at zero. This is a problem. You can't win the Democratic nomination if you can't get black support and Mayor Pete can't get black support. Bloomberg has only been a thing for a couple of weeks, and he's already over 20 percent of, of support of black black voters. That's a problem. So in Iowa and New Hampshire, where every single person going to the polls is going to come looking like they're they're dressed in camo for the snow because they're so white, they're going to vote for Mayor Pete. And nobody else is. Then you've got Biden now in third place in Iowa. And he's in free fall. He's out of money. Biden has only spent three hundred eight thousand dollars on TV ads in, in New Hampshire. I played you yesterday the audio that he's running against Mayor Pete. It's a digital only uh presence. Because he doesn't have the money to run the ad against Mayor Pete. And what's so interesting here is he's having to run the ad against Pete Buttigieg and not Bernie Sanders. Why? Because it's a recognition that Buttigieg has gotten ahead of Biden. Biden, if he were ahead of Buttigieg, would not be running attack ads on Buttigieg. He's having to run the attacks on Buttigieg because Buttigieg has the momentum. And Biden is in free-for-all trying to head it off. Then there's Elizabeth Warren. As long as Elizabeth Warren stays in the race, Bernie Sanders cannot consolidate his lead because Warren takes voters away from Buttigieg and Sanders, and in particular from Sanders. Some of Elizabeth Warren's supporters are... Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren's supporters, demographically, are well-to-do, white, secular, highly educated people. Those are Buttigieg supporters as well. But Elizabeth Warren... At her core support are a bunch of socialists, and they like Bernie Sanders, but they don't view Sanders as as electable as Elizabeth Warren. Her campaign has collapsed. She's running a campaign, and the campaign has run away from her. They've gotten away from her. There's a lot of backbiting happening in her campaign. There are a lot of rumors coming out about bad things that have happened on her campaign. She's lost a number of minority voters on her campaign uh, because she's treated people badly. In fact, I I want to go to last week. Uh, She was interviewed about this. Her campaign in collapse in Nevada, South Carolina, and several other states. Uh, Campaign staffers have quit because they say they've been harassed, uh, sexually harassed, racially harassed, treated badly, disparagingly, and the like. And this was Warren's answer.
4: (laughs) You know, I I believe these women uh, without any equivocation. And I apologize personally that they had a bad experience on the campaign. I really work hard to try to build a, a campaign and a work environment where it's diverse and open and everyone is welcome and celebrated and gets to bring their whole self to work every day. But I'm also very aware that uh, racism and oppression in this country have left a long legacy. And it uh, creates the kind of toxicity where people, power structures, people take advantage of other people. It's something for which we have to be constantly vigilant and constantly determined to do better. I take responsibility for this, and I'm working with my team to address these concerns.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, white people, white people are to blame for all of these problems. And she's taking responsibility for care campaign. But really, it, it's systematic racism of white people causing all the problems. Well, well played, Elizabeth Warren. This is a woman who at this point, she's like the Teresa Tomlinson of national politics. She'll say or do anything to get elected. And that's what she's doing here. Uh, to the crowd now. Uh, when you get below them, these are all the candidates in double digits: uh, Sanders, Buttigieg, Biden, and Warren. When you get below them, you've got Amy Klobuchar. Klobuchar is the senator from Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota, nice, except she's actually that. There, remember all these staffers leaked out stories to begin with about how uh, bad she was, how poorly she treated her staffers and stuff. She wanted to be over prepared for for conferences. At one point, she had to eat a salad with a with a comb because her Employee And by the way, that's just a mom thing and she handled that one well. I've always thought that story was ridiculous. She was on an airplane, had a salad. Uh, they forgot to give her a fork so she pulled out her comb and used her comb as a fork to eat her salad. That's a mom thing. Any of you parents out there understand this, and and that's what she said. It's a mom thing. It was no big deal. People tried to blow it up, but uh, they're out to get her. Now, beyond her, uh, there's Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang. Uh, Both of these people should drop out of the race. Gabbard won't because she's building a fundraising base for herself off the Ron Paul people who have crossed over into the Democratic Party to support her. She's got no traction. Andrew Yang is the most likable person in the race. And he's going to drop out. Uh, he's got to drop out. He he does not have. Uh, he 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 can't go forward he, now. He can fund some because he's really rich, but he's not getting traction in the Democratic field, and he's not going to pick up any delegates. Then there's poor old Tom Steyer, y'all. Steyer in his one plaid Christmas tie that he wears for everything. In fact, the New York Times has a picture of him, and it's that same damn tie. I mean, I don't think he owns another tie. It is just one plaid Christmas tie that he wears to everything, and. Think about this. The man has spent $17 million in advertisements alone in New Hampshire. $17 million, and he's at 3% in the poll. Joe Biden has spent $308,000 and is at 14%. Tom Steyer has spent $17 million in advertising in New Hampshire. He's at 3% in the polls, and the odds are very likely that Mike Bloomberg will get more write-in votes than Tom Steyer will get total in New Hampshire. Then you've got Deval Patrick and Michael Bennett. No one understands why they're running anymore. People forget their candidates. Michael Bennett is the senator from Colorado. Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, man. Deval Patrick at one point was the man. You had all these glowing profiles of him. He was the next Barack Obama. He was Barack Obama's political mentor. Barack Obama wanted him to run. He wouldn't run. He wouldn't run. He wouldn't run. Barack Obama played dry speeches from him. He wouldn't run. He wouldn't run. He wouldn't run. Then he decided he would step in and save the Democratic Party. And Do you remember You you, you had? And months ago, you you had this giddiness among reporters. Even Chuck Todd had this thing about Deval Patrick, where hey, I hear candidates getting in the race tomorrow, and he's going to shake up the Democratic Party field, and it's going to be something, and the Democrats are finally going to have someone they're proud about. And then he got in, and people are like, "Who the heck are you?" His first event in Iowa had to be canceled because he showed up at a school, and no one showed up for him. This is the Democratic field, and there's one name I haven't mentioned. Bloomberg. I mean, I mentioned him earlier, but in this lineup of who's on the ballot in New Hampshire, I haven't mentioned Bloomberg. And Bloomberg, again, as I've said, going to get more votes than Steyer probably as a writing candidate. And Bloomberg, here's the other funny thing. He's not on the ballot in Nevada. Nevada is next week. He's not on the ballot in South Carolina. South Carolina is in two weeks. So you'll have the first four contests, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. And candidates will be awarded delegates. And then suddenly Bloomberg comes onto the field for Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday is a, a big tradition among states for politics where a bunch of states cluster together and, and have their races. Now, who is Super Tuesday this year? Super Tuesday this year is California, Utah, Colorado, Texas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Arkansas, Tennessee, Alabama, North Carolina, Virginia, Massachusetts, Vermont, and Maine. That's going to be the Super Tuesday states this year. Bloomberg is spending more money than all the other candidates combined in California alone, let alone nationally. California alone. He's expecting to be able to make up ground in California. Biden thinks that he can do well in North Carolina and Arkansas and Alabama because of black voters. But the question is, does he hang out that long if he doesn't go well in South Carolina? The Democratic field is starting to take shape. The problem for the Democrats is it isn't taking shape fast enough. And their burn rate of money is putting the president at a competitive financial advantage against the Democrats. They all raised more money than him combined. But they're spending way more money than him just to hold on, and that's going to come back to bite them. You know, one of the interesting things here that nobody really wants to talk about, we can talk about it, is how the media is shaping the coverage and how that coverage is impacting uh, the state of play. Uh, Matt Grossman is uh, a Michigan State political scientist. Uh, he's at the Niskanen Center. Uh, he writes for 538. Let me read you a, a little bit of a thread uh, that he's put up. Biden now seems in danger of coming in fifth in New Hampshire after finishing fourth in Iowa. That would produce a big long media cycle of is this is this the end media has not given Biden to wait for South Carolina pass and likely is going to tout Amy or Pete uh, placement that all advantages Bernie based on polling history Amy Klobuchar has only a 1 in 500 chance of a delegate plurality, with uh, Pete Buttigieg at 7% versus Biden at 27%. For nomination stakes, a Biden loss is a Bernie win. But media is giving Mike Bloomberg a pass for skipping the early states. Polling history also gives him a low chance of delegate plurality, but hasn't seen many like him. Given the calendar, candidates might shift early and allow media hype for Bernie versus Bloomberg. After New Hampshire, there will be 11 days to Nevada and 18 days to South Carolina, but only 21 days to Super Tuesday, which has 15 times the delegates in many states with early voting. With Bloomberg so active, will the candidates really hunker down in Nevada and South Carolina, or will they start national campaigning much earlier? Problem is that Biden is out of money. He's going to have to hunker down. And then there's something else that the media has accounted for. The media coverage of this is terrible, is early voting has begun in all these states. Early voting began on the day of the Iowa caucuses when uh, Joe Biden was still supreme in the polling and Bernie Sanders was coming up and and Bloomberg really was a non-factor. So how much early voting will offset everything else? We really don't know. We got no idea. All of this stuff stuff for grabs, and the media lacks both a sense of history and a real understanding of politics. Here's a dirty little secret, and I can tell you this from being at CNN and at Fox for a number of years. All these campaign strategist types and and political analysts, uh, Republican and Democratic strategists, uh, a lot of these people were licking envelopes in a back office and never actually ran a campaign before. And they're the ones helping shape the news. You you actually got to pay attention to the people who've run campaigns, know how to design a campaign, have participated in campaigns. And what they'll tell you is that early voting matters more than the media is willing to give credit to. And the media oftentimes, because they take these wild angles, uh, the media can sabotage a campaign like the media uh, is not going to give Joe Biden a pass on waiting for South Carolina. And it shapes the coverage. Now, We've spent an hour talking about New Hampshire and the state of play of the Democratic Party. Uh, we've had so many uh, things going on in the last couple of weeks. I, I wanted to do it. But we need to talk about the president now because the Democrats aren't campaigning in isolation. They're in New Hampshire. The president was in New Hampshire last night as well on the campaign trail, had a big rally. We'll play some of that audio when we come back just a quick time out from the show to thank one of my favorite sponsors, one of the products I use on a daily basis, multiple times. That would be my Quip electric toothbrush. And I really am a customer and I really was before they started advertising for me. That's the way I like to do these ads. I like to endorse a product I'm already using. And Quip is one that I use, my wife uses, and both of my kids use. And we've used it before I started advertising. They make great electric toothbrushes. They're not the super fancy expensive ones. And you get a better clean. Why do you get a better clean? Well, because the quip you brush your teeth for two minutes and it pulses every 30 seconds so you know how to reposition it in your mouth and for those two minutes, Dennis wants you to brush your teeth for two minutes, you get a great clean with great sonic vibrations that really get your teeth clean. And you know I've got Invisalign braces so I've got those attachments. A lot of stuff gets stuck in them and behind the little attachments and with the Quip, I can always clean my teeth the way they need to be clean. It is a great toothbrush and it's not going to break the bank. It's just well made you can tell it's made by Dennis and designers together if you go to getquip.com ericsson right now you can get a quip and you can start with a brush head refill subscription where every three months they send you a new brush head they even include a battery and you get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash Erickson. It's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Quip, the good habits company. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to call in and be a part of the program, 877 97 That's 877-973-7425. We got some rain out there across the state today. The line really, everything is to the the west of I-75, north to south of the state, till you get up to north of I-20, and then it's kind of spread out. Light showers moving into the Rome area, uh, moving into the Clarksville area, the Athens area as well. Uh, The heaviest stuff is right south of I-20 in the Atlanta area, uh, from the Alabama line through Carroll County, uh, stretching over to McDonough, And Covington, uh, some showers in the Lake Country area around Greensboro as well. And then you get down to South Georgia, you got the Americas area, Perry, Warner Robins, you got some light showers down there. Uh, It was raining at my house earlier because it, it tripped the security camera, the motion of it, but it went away in Macon. I'm still in Atlanta today. I finally get to go back to God's country later tonight. Um, no offense to you people in Atlanta, but I, I, I'm I'm tired of seeing the tent cities cropping up. I want to go back to Macon, uh, where we don't have tent cities. We just let the homeless people sleep on the park benches downtown. Now we've got to get into the president's rally before we get into there is news on the Leffler Collins front. We will get there, but first, the president of the United States was on the campaign trail where in New Hampshire. See, this is the thing. The president gets massive amounts of exposure. You notice how the media, though, they're they're not covering the Trump rallies like they used to cover. Uh, They used to do these big Trump rallies, uh, and they would go wall to wall with their coverage, and then he became president. And they've never even had this, oh, my God, what have we done moment. Uh, It's just just they've moved forward now and pretend he doesn't exist with these rallies. And yet they're there. All they can do is complain about them, and the president takes full advantage of that.
3: I think they're in disarray. I think they have no idea who it is and what it is. It looks like Bernie is a little bit surging. I don't know what that means by surging. Depends on your definition of surge. What happened in Iowa is a disgrace. And I think pretty embarrassing to them. But, uh, you know, they'll pick somebody and whoever it is, it is. And you'll run against them. I have to run against somebody. (laughs) They're going to pick somebody.
1: That was the president in his uh, pre-rally interview And then he actually got to the interview and had a little bit of fun with the Democrats.
5: Washington Democrats have never been more extreme. Taking their cues from crazy Bernie, 132 congressional Democrats have signed up for Bernie's health care takeover that would strip 180 million Americans of their very, very coveted private coverage. The Democrat Party wants to run your health care, but they can't even run a caucus in Iowa. By the way, it's a week. A week. You know, I turned on at 7 o'clock. I wanted to see who won. They said, there's a little problem. Little did they know. Does anybody — it's now a week. Does anybody know who won Iowa? I don't know. Maybe Rand or Lindsay. Rand. Does anybody know who won? our Lindsay? you're a total pro. Nobody knows. He said nobody. Flip a coin. Flip a coin. Flip a coin. They're going to run your health care. Unbelievable. Nobody knows who won. Actually, I think they're trying to take it away from Bernie again. I think Bernie came in second. Can you believe it? They're doing it to you again, Bernie. They're doing it to you again. <laughs>
1: Now, you know, you you need to understand, and this is some some of the the Fox News coverage as well, that they're stealing for Bernie. Again, this is a deliberate strategy on the Republicans' part, and it actually is a really funny way to go about it. Uh, They know that Bernie Sanders supporters are livid with the Democratic Party. The Bernie Sanders supporters are still convinced that the Democrats stole it from Bernie in 2016 and gave it to Hillary Clinton and uh, the republicans are doing their best to rub it in the republicans want bernie to believe that he they're 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 stealing it from him <laughs> and you know here's the thing sanders and his team are publicly doing a good job sanders and his team are publicly playing the, the the Democrat, even though he's not really a Democrat, they're, they're playing the Democratic team player. Ba- Bernie Sanders and his team are publicly saying, no, no, the process is working. Privately, they are as mad as the Sanders supporters. They are livid. They are livid. And they are absolutely unwilling to play nice in the fall if Bernie Sanders is not the nominee they will not go for Mike Bloomberg because they do not like Mike Bloomberg and Mike Bloomberg is a billionaire and they believe that Mike Bloomberg is trying to buy the election and they're opposed to that Uh, it is it's absolutely crazy so now okay what about the rest of the president stuff? The president did give a, a pre-campaign uh, speech interview last night on Fox. Let me—I I played you uh, what he said about the the Democrats. Let me play you a little bit more of, of the president. He also got into the coronavirus stuff, which I want to get into. They're
4: going well, it, it
3: was a, I can't imagine because you know it's driven our poll numbers way up, okay. as you know better yeah. than maybe I do. You know, no, frankly, no, it you know, Our poll numbers are the highest they've ever been by far. It's the Republican Party, even the numbers have been driven way up. So, uh, no, it's been just been fine, but it's very unfair to my family, very unfair to a lot of great people that work in the administration. Very unfair. You know, we've gone through this for three years. This isn't just the impeachment hoax. This is the witch hunt. I call it the Russia, Russia, Russia nonsense. And uh, but it's been, we've been fully exonerated. We've been, you know, it's it's good. I can't imagine them starting again. But with these people, you never know. You never know. Uh, one more here. Well, look, we've done a lot. We've done a lot without her. We've done a lot. Uh, you know, whatever we can do, we have a. We have great people, senators and congressmen and women, and we've—I think—we've done more than anybody has done in the first three years of a term.
4: And yet you've had I mean, to fight a lot. I
3: mean, have had I think- to fight all the way with these people. We could solve the immigration problem. You know, we've—we're building the wall, but I had to build it without them. I had to go all the way around and short circuit it. And now we're—we're we're building the wall very rapidly. Actually, we have over 100 miles built. We're going to have close to 500 miles built in the very near future. Uh, And it's going to be very important. We already see Well, we have the 100 miles up, Trish. What a difference it makes in that area. It's a lot. But what a difference it makes in the air, like day and night.
1: What a difference it makes day and night. Uh, You know, the Democrats, again, as I said, they're, they're not operating in a vacuum. They got the president out there on the campaign trail. And they're almost letting the president dictate their nominee when you think about it. Because Biden originally was the guy because Biden could unite the Democrats to beat Donald Trump. And now it doesn't look that way. And the Sanders supporters were always about Bernie and expanding socialism. They was never so much about uh, beating Trump. They just believe that his ideas can beat Trump, that socialism trumps Trump. Well, now you've got Democratic voters who are are thinking maybe we need to go new and shiny. And instead of consolidating around Joe Biden, that's allowed them to flirt with Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar when they could have consolidated the field. But wait a second. There's Mike Bloomberg. And Mike Bloomberg has taken this campaign tack of he's going to go negative against the president and throw as many punches as he can. Uh, He's got to punch up. He's so short and he knows it and he's willing to do it. You know, he he actually is a really short guy. This, by the way, is why I've got several friends of mine who have said he will never be president of the United States because he's short. It's we're, we're not munchkin land here. And, and he, he could qualify as mayor of, of Munchkinland. He is rather short. Optics do matter. When the president of the United States is ridiculing Mike Bloomberg for being kind of short, um, it's, it's going to matter. These things, but we are a vain people. A superficial people, we like celebrities and whatnot, and listen, there's a reason Tom Cruise goes out of his way in his movies to make sure that people don't realize how short he is. Bloomberg is going to have that problem when he's on stage with Donald Trump and others. He's going to have a real problem. Will he be on a riser? Remember, the president is already needling Mike Bloomberg for needing a riser. He needs a high chair to get up behind a podium. <laughs> And Trump is living rent-free in their head. He's going to help them shape the nominee. You know where else the president is going to help shape nominees? That would be Georgia. Notice that expert transition. I am a professional. We're moving on to the Collins-Leffler race here. Uh, The president has said he wants to cut a deal. No one knows what deal he's going to cut. No one has any idea what he's even talking about. The Leffler people think that the president's going to put Collins somewhere. The Collins people think he's going to put Leffler somewhere. No one knows. But... There is an interesting turn of events with this situation in that uh, the major Washington conservative groups and establishment groups are starting to align behind Kelly Loeffler, which is somewhat problematic for Doug Collins. Although I, I got to – let me let me make a, an educated guess here. My educated guess is going to be that Doug Collins gets more in-state support than Kelly Loeffler from conservatives because Collins has – been a fixture for those people for a while. And so Collins will be able to take advantage of that in terms of fundraising and in terms of uh, messaging, in terms of support. And Leffler's going to have to build it because she's still a very unknown quantity. But you're starting to see the Club for Growth come after Collins. Uh, They sent me a copy of their ad. I'm not going to play it. And and listen, it's it's, I love the club. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, I'm just not going to I'm not going to disparage Doug Collins here. Um, but so you've got the Club for Growth has come out for Kelly Loeffler now. They're attacking Doug Collins. You've got the Susan B. Anthony list is coming out for Kelly Loeffler. That one's actually really notable. It's notable because they were deeply critical of Brian Kemp making that appointment. They they blasted Brian Kemp. They were upset with me for supporting it. Uh, it and now they've come out and they've endorsed Kelly Loeffler. Why? Because they got to know her. And they realize she is going to be a solid conservative for him. So they're out. The National Republican Senatorial Committee is out for her. That's going to be big. Now, Collins is going to get the American Conservative Union, but they don't typically put a lot of money behind candidates. And he'll get some in-state Georgia groups as well backing him against Leffler. But this is actually fundamentally the problem for Collins in all of this is that he's got to decide— And got to be able to figure out uh, where his base of support is going to come from financially because he doesn't have the deep pockets that Loeffler has. Now, he can offset that and turn her financial prowess into her weakness by saying he's got the support of Georgians and she doesn't. And he's got a a base grassroots support that she doesn't. And he he should be able to make momentum there. But again, this all goes back to the president, the president floating a deal. The Leffler team has no reason to take a deal and get out of the Senate because she is going to be the incumbent senator in November on the ballot, and she's got all the money. If Doug Collins just wants to be out of the House, they can find a place for him. I don't know what that looks like, but his campaign team is, is, they're kind of burning bridges with uh, the governor's staff, and to some degree now the lieutenant governor's staff, the lieutenant governor is is back in Leffler. And so where are you going to put Doug Collins? Is Doug Collins going to take a deal? No one seems to know this thing. It, it could be a very, very messy November, and, and now you've got uh, certain fringe elements in the Republican Party saying that, that uh, Brian Kemp – they're putting it all on Brian Kemp saying he's cost Georgia. He's going to cost Georgia uh, a Republican seat in the Senate. It's not really his fault. He made his pick. It, it's the other people who decided not to go along with it that's the problem. And uh, this fight is going to come in November – and There is one upside to this fight, I think. Because there's not going to be a primary, you are going to have two masses of Republican voters highly motivated to get out and vote. And the Democrats are trying to rally behind Ralph Warnock, and their thinking is that Warnock can unite the Democrats and have them turn out en masse. But if you've got two Republican candidates and they are fighting brutally with each other and it's gotten nasty and it's fired up both sides, you're going to have a bunch of Republicans who let their anger, in addition to wanting to support the president, they're going to show up at the polls en masse to, to, to take it out on on one side or the other. And that actually benefits Republican turnout overall. It does. That matters in the fundamentals of the election when turnout matters and turnout is going to matter in Georgia. Uh, To some degree, Collins getting in like this may actually help the Republican turnout in November, not hurt the Republican turnout. But it is going to cause Republicans to spend a lot of money in a race where they could spend that money in the David Perdue race or the um, race to save the Senate and the House in Georgia or the president's race. That's the downside. Just like the Democrats now having all these people refusing to drop out uh, and allowing the money to consolidate, this prohibits money from consolidating in races in Georgia and causes the GOP to have to spread its money thinner when they've definitely got to prop up the state and hold the House and the Senate because redistricting is right around the corner. Hello there. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to call in, the Savannah port is going to be deepened in the president's budget. Deep and wide, deep and wide. Um, they're going to, they want to do this. You know, this is actually a big deal for the Georgia economy. You got to expand that port because of the uh, ships that are now coming from China, the supercargo ships, what they want to do is they want to build an inland port. I think they're already beginning the inland port build. They've got to update. So one reason they're doing all this massive road construction in the making, Georgia. If you've driven through middle Georgia, you, if, you, if you're if you on seventy-five, particularly if you're going to Savannah, you see it, there's this massive road construction where they're building all these new bridges at the I-16, I-75 interchange. Now, part of that reason is because in interstate um, functionality, when you're Transferring from one interstate to another, you, you exit on the right. Well, the problem is that in, in in Macon, when you get to I-16, it's a left exit. And all the time you see people swerving over one way or the other. Either they want to stay on 75 or they want to get on 16. It's a nightmare death trap. My wife refuses to go through there e- even before the construction began. And now she won't go through there at all if she can help it. It's, it's, it's a death trap. So they're building all these bridges. Well, part of the reason that they're building this massive interchange, and by the way, that was one of the last major votes I took when I was on city council in Macon. And people lit me on fire, metaphorically speaking, for for daring to vote for that. But it needed to happen. Uh, It needs to happen. But it's a massive interchange. And one of the reasons is because they're anticipating a massive amount of cargo uh, that will be shipped to an inland port in Cordill, Georgia, where essentially they will offload uh, tractor trailers from the port of Savannah. And in order to expedite getting boats in and out of ships, I should say, in and out of the port, they'll un- they'll empty them as quickly as possible and ship the cargo down to, to Cordill, and it'll go through customs inspection there and then sort out there. They've got railroad tracks and infrastructure in place there to build this inland port. So it, it gets the cargo unloaded quicker from the boats in Savannah, gets them back out to sea, turns them around quicker, frees up spots in the port for more cargo to come in, and then ships all the stuff. Well, they had to expand the interstate. And they had to build all the extra infrastructure, their their rail lines improving and all that. Uh, I still think they need to improve that Middle Georgia regional airport. And there's work there. The the Industrial Authority down in, in Middle Georgia is building that airport. It's asinine to me. That you've got uh, two dead mayors, International Airport in Atlanta, and that's basically it. Uh, you've got the Savannah Airport, which is growing. In fact, Delta is adding some flights there, and Frontier is adding some flights there. Uh, but you got all those people in Middle and South Georgia, and, and they've got to go to Columbus, Valdosta, or Albany, and and catch a flight to Atlanta. Meanwhile, in Make it Now, you've got this this flight that goes to Baltimore, and it's cheap, so you can fly up to the Washington D.C. area and back. Uh, and you can do it on a Macon. You got free parking at the airport, and you don't have to drive all the way to Atlanta. Now, the downside is it goes into Baltimore. It doesn't go into DCA, the, the major hub in DC. But at least they finally thought out of the box about moving somewhere else. You know, so I was on the city council. The worst job of my life was being on city council. It was a part-time job that was all-consuming. And you got people, and you know people are stupid, and people come up to you, and they say their their trash didn't get picked up, and it's because the idiot didn't roll their trash can down to the curb in time. And everybody's got an opinion on everything I mean, I do, but I do that for a living My job is to have opinions on stuff But people come up to you with all sorts of crazy ideas But one of the non-crazy ideas had always been to Add extra feet to the runway in Macon And suddenly you can land bigger planes down there And you can offload cargo capacity And and generate an incentive there to to revitalize Middle Georgia When I was on city council, though, in Macon So it was Macon owned the airport Uh, Bibb County did not and so they couldn't get buy-in from anybody else, and they're always like, oh, we we don't want to have a regional airport authority to do this because we don't want other counties having say. And then the city council wouldn't do anything because they're like, well, most of the people who work at the airport don't live in the city, so why do we want to invest? It's like, you idiots, it's your airport. You could single-handedly revitalize the middle and south Georgia economy by adding, adding feet to that runway and bringing in cargo capacity. But nope, nope, nope couldn't do it. Um, it, It's just bizarre. But all of that is to say, with the port in Savannah now deepening, they're going to get more and bigger ships. They're going to offload that capacity into Cordill. A lot of it's going to be routed through Middle Georgia, which is why you've got that big interchange. If they ever expanded the airport, you would have greater opportunities for economic development in Middle and South Georgia as well. It should be done. Uh, But this is good news that they're actually doing this. Now, when we come back, there's a story in the newspapers. Trey Kelly is a uh, ranking member in the state house and the news media is accusing him of leaving a man to die in a ditch. And you should know about this story because it is gaining traction in the press. It's actually nationally gone viral now with a number of stories calling for an investigation. I want to feel, you know that. And also, you know, the student Joe Biden called a lion dog face, pony soldier. She goes to Mercer university in Macon, Georgia. Yeah, that uh, student, that New Hampshire voter that Joe Biden called a lying dog-faced pony soldier. She says she was offended. Uh, Biden, I mean, if you want honest to goodness, if you watch it, Biden has used that line before, and it's always he uses it rather flippantly uh, and jokingly. He got it from a John Wayne. It was actually two different movies that he's conflated, but it was a John Wayne movie. That was the line. And people want to make a big deal out of it. She's, of course, uh, feels victimized and, and that she was disrespected and whatnot. Oh, uh, just come off it. He meant it funny he's done it before people make it a big deal out of it but ironically uh it's it's probably going to to set the stage for his demise and well there's nothing he can do about it at this point it's it's going to be it's going to be something to see now What else do we have going on out there? Uh, Oh, oh, you should know Newt Gingrich has come out this morning and endorsed Kelly Loeffler uh, joining SBA, Club for Growth, and RSC. I'm sure Collins will be rolling out some endorsements of his own here. I want to get to this, though, Trey Kelly story. Um, I had the story up, and then I accidentally closed it. Let let me pull it up. this is uh, Eleven Alive in Atlanta. Uh, originally, did the story, and it is uh, it has taken on a life of its own. It has uh, gotten a lot. It's now getting national coverage. And let me read this to you. Uh, this is uh, this is Lindsay Basie in Faith the at Eleven Alive in Atlanta. The headline is Driver with Powerful Ties Call State Rep Instead of 911 After Hit and Run Crash. A Georgia man was left dying in a ditch for more than an hour. Nobody called 911, including a Georgia State Representative and a local police chief. The day Aaron Kias and his older brother Eric were supposed to start working together as painters, Aaron was awakened by a phone call. It was his dad. It was bad news. Police had found 38-year-old Eric dead in a ditch the night before, just three miles from his home. A driver hit him while he was riding his bicycle down North Main Street in Cedartown, Georgia. Aaron couldn't stop the tears. It's really hard on me because he's my brother, he said through tears. Recalling that day, September 12, 2019, Eric had been pronounced dead at 10.15 p.m. the night before. And Polk County Corridor Tony Brazier wasn't ready for what he would learn about the crash that his friends, some of the most prominent people in the community, were involved in the aftermath to varying degrees. We realized early on that this was going to be problematic, he said. There was more than just a regular accident. The vehicle had been moved. Documents obtained by 11 Alive's The Reveal show the driver, identified as 37-year-old Ralph Ryan Dover III, didn't stop when he hit Eric. He kept driving with the passenger side headlight hood and fender area caved in along with the passenger side windshield shattered and caved in, the police report read. There was also a bit of red paint on the front bumper of the impact area. Dover drove almost a mile before stopping in a convenience store parking lot. Dover didn't call the police. He didn't call 911. He called a friend he'd been hanging out with at the county fair. That friend was attorney and Georgia State Representative Trey Kelly. Dover told police at first he didn't know what he hit and then said it could have been a deer or possibly a person. The best case scenario, let's say, okay, Dover told uh, Trey Kelly I hit a dog or a deer. Are you going to drive a mile away and call a lawyer? No, Brazier said. The reveal investigation shows not only did Dover not call 911, Trey Kelly didn't call 911, though according to a statement to police, Kelly saw a bicycle at the side of the road. When Eric was laying in the ditch dying, Representative Trey Kelly observed a bicycle on the side of the road and immediately called the police chief, Jamie Newsom, at home. In a statement to investigators, Chief Newsom, who was was off duty at the time, says he thought Kelly was calling on behalf of Dover for an accident for him. But then in the middle of the conversation with Representative Kelly, the police chief wrote, I stopped him and said something akin to, wait, he might have hit a person? Newsom said he told Kelly to wait with Dover when where they were and immediately got off the phone. But the reveal is learned the police chief didn't call for medical help either. He got on his police radio and asked a sergeant to call him on, on the phone at home. The reveal discovered it would not have been unusual for the chief to call 911 uh, for police, fire and ambulance to head to the scene. He'd done so dozens of times in the past including cases involving damage to property, location checks, and other things in Polk County. The sergeant says the police chief told him there was a possible accident that he should go talk to the state representative and the driver, who are now closer, in a parking lot across the street from the scene. The chief tried to manage a 911 call. You can't micromanage a 911 call, not from your home. You can't do that, Brazier said angrily. Ah, oh, boy. What a mess. Uh, Brazier, by the way, is the coroner, and he's upset about it. Turns out that the victim, Eric Kias, was lying in a ditch alone in excruciating pain. By the time the police sergeant got to the area and notified EMS, it was over an hour after the crash. Polk County 911 says they got the 911 call. Had they gotten the 911 call as soon as the crash happened, they could have been in the scene within five minutes. While looking around the scene, the police sergeant found Eric's hat and found his red bicycle. And then 100 feet from the initial point of impact, according to the GBI autopsy report, the police found Eric barely breathing in the ditch. That's when EMT EMS was notified. The crash happened at 8.25 p.m., according to records obtained from the Georgia State Patrol. EMS was not notified until 9.29 p.m., more than an hour later. The first unit arrived at 9.31 p.m., two minutes after EMS was notified. Middle-aged white male possibly struck by vehicle, shortness of breath, unconscious, pulse, question mark, The police uh, told a dispatcher over, over the police radio, but by that point in time, they had missed the hour, the golden hour, said the coroner, explaining that if a trauma patient can get into trauma care within an hour, their chances of survival improve dramatically. May turn out to be a fatality. It's not yet, but may turn out to be they're working on him, says the radio traffic patient went full arrest. At this point, it was too late. The officers canceled their request for a medical chopper. If Polk 911 had gotten a call like this, the boy might still be alive, says the coroner. The mess here stinks to high heaven. This reeks of the good old boy. No criminal charges have been filed. There have not been criminal charges filed for a hit and run. There have not been criminal charges for leaving the scene of the accident, not for any of it. Dover hasn't responded to requests for an interview. 11 Alive talked to his parents. They say the 37-year-old didn't have the mental capacity to call 911, so he called the last person he was with, Representative Kelly. The family has not shown any documents showing a diagnosis of any sort of mental impairment. The family says that if if his parents believed Dover didn't have the mental capacity to make life-or-death decisions, he shouldn't have been behind the wheel. Representative Kelly says Dover thought he might have hit a deer. Uh, Kelly says he's a potential witness in an ongoing matter. It wouldn't be proper for him to comment any further. He did notify law enforcement. Now, here's the thing: I, I, I've I've gone through the the nine, uh, the, I've gone through the eleven alive stuff. Uh, here's here's my thinking: You're you're in Polk County, it is small town environment, and these sorts of things happen. And there was a real screw-up, and they should have called 911. But it's not unheard of in small-town America for everybody to know everybody, for people to be connected and to call the police chief at home instead of calling 911, particularly if you think, for example, that a deer was hit. The problem comes, obviously, in that there is a red bicycle And there's red paint on the hood of the car, and it should not have taken a genius to put two and two together and think this might have been actually a person. Because guess what wasn't found? There was no deer anywhere. There there was no dead deer. And it sounds to me like someone needs to answer for this. And it sounds to me like uh, there are going to be some more questions. And it sounds to me like had it not been a state representative, quite frankly, uh, the media would not be treating this as salaciously as it is. Let's be hon- honest here. Uh, the, the media coverage of this in large part has to do with the fact that a state representative is involved. Had it just been Joe Schmo, it would not be the big story that it is. And I don't get a sense from any of the reporting that Trey Kelly is culpable of anything, uh, but it certainly sounds like at a bare minimum this person who was driving, this Dover person, should not drive again. What ultimately is the issue here, though, is is, is there's a real tragedy here. There is, a, there is a dead man because of a series of screw-ups because people didn't follow any sort of standard procedure. I mean the coroner is absolutely right here. There was no standard procedure – followed. And in large part, it's because it's small town, Georgia, where everybody knows everybody. So I'm going to call the state rep and the state rep is going to call the police chief and the police chief is going to call the sergeant and people are going to go out and they're going to take their time because they don't know what's going on. But again, this has a lot to do with the initial driver driving away, thinking he hit a deer, claiming at least that he hit a deer. But this has become a story. You know, I, I Googled this story I Googled Representative Trey Kelly. This is now a national story. It's not just a, a Georgia story. It's just a, a another national story of a good old boy network and, hey, did you hear what happened down in Georgia? And we should – it should not distract from the fact that a man is dead uh, through negligence, neglect, through something, and he shouldn't have died. And it's sad, but I, I just – I hang on to this this issue that the story is getting the coverage it's getting because there's a state representative involved. And should he have called 911? Maybe. But he called the police chief. He thought it was a deer. Did he do something wrong? Yeah, he absolutely did something wrong. But did he realize it at the time? I don't know that he did. And and I kind of feel bad for Trey Kelly here getting dragged into this. Uh, given the situation, given how it happened, it's, it's he didn't call the guy. The guy called him instead of calling 911. And it makes it more salacious that you got the, the police chief and you got the state representative involved. But ultimately, it's the guy behind the wheel who's culpable here and the guy behind the wheel who needs to answer for justice. He, he wound up killing somebody. And is he still driving? No charges have been filed. And the real question here needs to be, why haven't charges been filed against this guy? As opposed to what did the police chief or Trey Kelly do?
3: Well, I think China is very, you know, professionally run in the sense that they have everything under control. I really believe they are going to have it under control fairly soon. You know, in April, supposedly, it dies with a hotter weather, and that's a beautiful date to look forward to. But China, I can tell you, is working very hard. We're working with them. You know, we just sent some of our best people over the World Health Organization, and uh, a lot of them are composed of our people. They're fantastic, and they're now in China, and we're helping. Them out we're in very good shape we have 11 cases and most of them are getting better very rapidly I think they'll all be better uh, but, uh, no, our relationship with China, you know, we made a, a great deal, a great trade deal. And our relationship on top of that is probably better with China. They respect us now. What they were getting away with was murder. You know that from being um, a fanat- uh, uh, you, really you you a financial. You
4: turned the whole thing on yeah. its head. You really yeah. did in a way that nobody thought was quite possible.
3: They'll be buying $250 billion worth of our product uh, that we grow and make, etc. $250 billion coming in. Japan is going to be $40 billion. And then you look at the U.S., uh, Mexico and Canada, USMCA, that's going to be a fantastic deal for the farmers, manufacturers, automakers, everybody. I mean, we have these incredible things happening, and I think the virus is going to be, it's going to be fine. I, they're working very hard, and we are in communication with Great, them. good.
1: Well, welcome back, by the way. It's Eric Erickson here, the phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. That was the president on Fox News talking about the coronavirus. Uh, The death toll now over 1,000, and there are increasing reports out of China that the actual death toll may be above twenty or 30,000. And the Chinese are doing everything they can to keep it under wraps. But in so doing and, and rushing, it looks more and more like uh, they're signaling as well that they really are having tens of thousands of people dead and, and possibly hundreds of thousands infected. Uh, the storytellers uh, who have been using their camera phones to document what's happening and spreading it around on, on WeChat and other uh, networks in China are disappearing Chen uh, Kushi, uh, let me just re- read you this um, from the AP. After nearly a week of roaming China's epidemic-stricken city, filming the dead and the sickened. In overwhelmed hospitals, the strain of being hounded by both the new virus and the country's dissident quelling police started to tell. Chen Kushi looked haggard and disheveled in his online post, an almost unrecognizable shadow of an energetic young man who had rolled into Wuhan on a self-assigned mission to tell its inhabitants' stories just as authorities locked the city down three weeks ago. And then he disappeared last week. The 34-year-old lawyer-turned-video blogger was one of the most visible pioneers in a small but dogged movement that is defying the Communist Party's uh, monopoly on information. Armed with smartphones and social media accounts, the citizen journalists are telling their stories and those of others from Wuhan and other lockdown virus zones in Hubei Province. The scale of this non-sanctioned storytelling is unprecedented. It presents a challenge to the Communist Party. It's very different from anything China has witnessed, says a professor at uh, Georgia State University who researches Chinese media. Never have so many Chinese, including victims and healthcare workers, used their phones to televise their experience of a disaster. That's partly because the more than 50 million people locked down in cities under quarantine are really anxious and bored and their lives are pretty much stopped. The Chinese are, are telling us one story, but we're seeing the real story come to life. A video posted January 25th showed what Chin said was a body left under a blanket outside an emergency ward. Inside another hospital, he filmed a dead man propped up on a wheelchair, head hanging down, and face face deathly pale. "'What's wrong with him?' he asked a woman, holding the man up with an arm. "'He's already passed,' she said. Chin's posts and and video blogs have garnered millions of views and police attention. In an anguished video post near the end of his first week in Wuhan— he said police called him, wanted to know where he was, and questioned his parents. They went after his parents. Video posts are being taken down. And here's what we're discovering. Based on these video reports, the situation has gotten out of control, and the Chinese can't contain it. The deaths are far more than people would like to believe. There are a number of uh, people coming out of China saying that, again, 25,000, 30,000 people dead, hundreds of thousands uh, infected. It has spread to every part of China. It has spread into North Korea. In fact, North Korea, uh, it had its 72nd anniversary of the founding of North Korea, and they've canceled their annual military parade for the first time in 72 years because of the coronavirus. That's how bad the situation is. In Hong Kong, it has spread to Hong Kong. It has spread to Taiwan. And now in this country, it turns out that someone went to a hospital in San Diego, had reportedly been in Wuhan, had symptoms of the virus, and was discharged accidentally by the San Diego hospital, back out into the wild. And now there are police reports of concerns, and I shouldn't say police reports, medical reports. Of uh, concern that the virus may spread in an area of San Diego because this guy got out. Uh, The disease turns out to be more highly infectious. And there are reports coming out of Europe that some people who appear to have had the disease uh, go away are still uh, capable of spreading the infection for several days after their symptoms go away. Tom Cotton, of course, I played the audio yesterday. Is concerned this may, given the way that the symptoms present itself, may have actually come out of a weapons lab uh, that is in Wuhan, where they experiment on the coronavirus. He doesn't know, and he didn't want to spread conspiracy theories. But he he does know for certain, and we do know, and the World Health Organization is saying that this virus did not start at that seafood um, uh, is at the seafood uh, market. Like was originally reported, it appears that someone showed up at the seafood market carrying the coronavirus. Patient zero showed up there and then spread the disease at the seafood market to other people. Kind of a kind of a big deal of what's going on there. I, I want to spend a little more time on the coronavirus. I don't want to freak anybody out. I don't want to scare you. Uh, but there actually are some practical implications to the spread of the coronavirus in China directly impacting the United States and the global economy because China, whether you like it or not, China is kind of the um, manufacturing hub of the world these days. Uh, everybody gets their goods made in China. When all the factories are shut down because the people are dying in the streets from a virus, your iPhone isn't going to get made. Your your laptop isn't going to get made. It, it's going to hold up the world supply chain. Just a quick time out from the show to thank one of my favorite sponsors, one of the products I use on a daily basis, multiple times, that would be my Quip electric toothbrush. And I really am a customer and I really was before they started advertising for me. That's the way I like to do these ads. I like to endorse a product I'm already using. And Quip is one that I use, my wife uses and both of my kids use, and we've used it before I started advertising. They make great electric toothbrushes. They're not the super fancy expensive ones and you get a better clean. Why do you get a better clean? Well, because the quip you brush your teeth for two minutes and it pulses every 30 seconds so you know how to reposition it in your mouth and for those two minutes, Dennis wants you to brush your teeth for two minutes, you get a great clean with great sonic vibrations that really get your teeth clean. And you know I've got Invisalign braces so I've got those attachments. A lot of stuff gets stuck in them and behind the little attachments and with the Quip I can always clean my teeth the way they need to be clean. It is a great toothbrush and it's not going to break the bank. It's just well made you can tell it's made by Dennis and design designers together. If you go to getquip.com slash right now, you can get a Quip and you can start with a brush head refill subscription where every three months they send you a new brush head. They even include a battery and you get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash Erickson. It's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Erickson. E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Quip, the good habits company. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson, the third hour of The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to call in, 877 97 Eric, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. I I do want to spend just another moment on the coronavirus situation uh, as it continues to spread across China in particular you know the president passed the got congress to pass the usmca the united states mexico canada agreement um and it requires increased manufacturing in the united states which is more expensive than in china but interestingly enough that we're now starting to realize that so much of what we produce is produced in china And there is no manufacturing capacity elsewhere in the world that there are more and more countries starting to realize they have national security problems because of the situation in China. Take, for example, saline bags. You go to the hospital, you get saline. It's in a bag, hangs from an IV. The only place on planet Earth where saline bags are made is China in the Wuhan province. Did you know that? I did not know that, and I assumed it was an urban legend, but no, it's actually true. Uh, They can make them so cheaply there at scale uh, that other companies have stopped making them. They outsource everything to China. So what happens when the people are too sick and can't go to work to make the saline bags? Well, guess what the world runs out of? Now, there are, I am told, small manufacturers still in in specialized situations that that do make bags— But they're not at the economies of scale that happen in China. Or look at the iPhone. The iPhone is made in China. And they've had to close up shop in the factories because the factories are overrun with sick people. Apple has had to close all of its stores in China. You can't go buy an Apple product in China from Apple now because all the stores are closed. These things matter when so many of our goods... Are now produced cheaply in China, and China is now collapsing before our eyes in sickness. It matters to all of us. And there is a national security issue there. Uh, when medical supplies and devices and the like are manufactured there, a lot of healthcare goods are manufactured in China as well. Uh, it does jeopardize our security long term. And interestingly enough, this president has largely. Uh, thought about that and contemplated that, which is one reason in this trade war he's been pushing more and more manufacturing inside the United States. You can say it was foresight or not, uh, but there was something uh, there that is actually good. It's just, unfortunately, as the, the, the spread of the coronavirus in China is happening way more rapidly than anyone expected. And we, even with economies of scale and firing up new plants and manufacturing facilities in this country, are behind in the game. And it's something we're going to have to figure out keep that in mind now i want to switch gears uh and i want to focus on corporations i've been talking about the subject for a while Uh, This is escalating because Georgia has legislation uh, that is pending and Tennessee has legislation that is pending on the same issue, Uh, that issue being, of course, the adoption law in the state of Georgia. Uh, Marty Harbin has submitted. I don't actually think it's going to make it through the state house representatives, but I do want to explain it to you real quick to set the stage for this other story. Uh, In Georgia, Marty Harbin in the state senate from Tyrone has introduced legislation that would protect faith-based adoption agencies. Uh, Faith-based adoption agencies, they're not just Christian, they're not just Protestant, um, they're not just Catholic. There are uh, Jewish, Orthodox Jewish adoption agencies and Muslim adoption agencies as well. And they tend to adopt within their faith, and as part of that, uh, one of their requirements is uh, that if you are of their faith, you have to adhere to uh, the sexual ethics of that faith. So, for example, a Catholic adoption agency will not adopt to a single person, nor will a Catholic adoption agency adopt to a uh, married gay couple. you got to be a heterosexual um, married couple to adopt at a Catholic adoption agency. In New England, the state has turned against this idea, believing it discriminatory, and they've shut down Catholic adoption agencies. The problem that we're seeing in states like Massachusetts now is that there are a lot of kids in foster care, and new adoption agencies have not sprung up to take the place of the closed ones. So there's now a backlog in the ability to adopt and process kids in foster care in Massachusetts. And more and more kids are in state homes because there aren't Catholic adoption agencies to help place kids in foster care. And there aren't Catholic agencies and other Christian faith-based agencies to help place kids for adoption. The effect is harmful to the kids because the kids stay in state care. Uh, the gay rights movement has made the decision that it is better for the kids to stay in state care than to be adopted into a household that might teach them, uh, bigotry in the form of Christian, Muslim, or Orthodox Jewish values. Well, Nike has gotten in on the gang, uh, in in on the gang. Uh, Tennessee has a faith-based adoption law, Texas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, Louisiana, um, Nebraska, I believe, and a couple of other states have now passed laws that say faith-based adoption agencies can uh, participate in state adoptions without having to sacrifice their uh, biblical ethics or, or uh, Quranic ethics. And Tennessee is now considering a law. Nike has now joined Amazon, Dell, Mars, Ikea, Hilton, Marriott, and a few other corporations, uh, calling on Tennessee to kill the legislation, House Bill 836 in Tennessee. Now uh, the law eh, has been signed by the governor. It appears he expedited signing, and eh, I well, I'm 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 trying to navigate this. <laughs> yes, um, yes, the governor backed the legislation. And now Nike, Amazon, Dell, and the others are blasting Tennessee for doing this and saying that uh, they're discriminating. Now, what's so interesting here is that Nike has refused to join in any criticisms of China in Hong Kong. If you'll recall, Nike has stood shoulder to shoulder with the Chinese. But they're really upset with Tennessee taking the stand, joining Texas. By the way, all these companies were largely silent when Texas did it. It's these other states that they're blasting – This comes on the heels of Wells Fargo and Fifth Third Bank uh, deciding that they're going to stop funding uh, a scholarship program for poor students in Florida because some of those students might wind up going to Christian schools. This This is one of the most bizarre trends in the 21st century. You've got Fortune 500 companies that have long supported elevating poor kids out of poverty by getting them good educations. And they're now abandoning those efforts because, God forbid, some of these kids' parents may send them to Christian schools. So Fifth Third Bank, for example, and Wells Fargo have for years contributed thousands of dollars to this Opportunity Scholarship Fund in Florida. 83 schools, there are 1,000 schools that participate in the scholarship fund. 83 of them are Christian schools that adhere to biblical sexual ethics. And so because 83 out of 1,000 do this, Wells Fargo and Fifth Third Bank have stopped contributing money to the scholarship program. We are seeing a growing intolerance in this country for people of faith, particularly Christians in this country. Uh, It is a growing hostility that began uh, a a long time ago, but it was the Obama administration that set a new standard by arguing that uh, the right to the freedom uh, to exercise your religion under the First Amendment really meant a freedom to worship. Uh, They actually argued in court, and it was rejected nine to nothing by the Supreme Court, the idea that the free exercise of religion actually meant a freedom to worship uh, for an hour on Sunday. That's actually what they argued. And the Supreme Court rejected that and said it was more expansive than that. But the Supreme Court's never done a good job of telling us exactly how expansive it is. So the next thing the Obama administration did is they went after the Little Sisters of the Poor. By the way, Little Sisters of the Poor are now having to come back to the Supreme Court this year. If you'll recall, Little Sisters of the Poor... Uh, it won a case before the Supreme Court, the Obama administration insisted they cover abortions for people who work for their charities. Now, it's not just nuns who work for Little Sisters of the Poor; they also hire private citizens who are who identify as Catholic, but uh, you know, not all Catholics are or devout cat are devout Catholics. And the Obama administration demanded Little Sisters of the Poor. In their insurance policy for their private employees pay for abortions. And Little Sisters of the Poor said they weren't going to do that. The Obama administration dragged them to court. They went to court and they won. Well, now states, the state of Massachusetts, the state of California, and a couple others have joined a lawsuit against Little Sisters of the Poor. And they're now demanding that under state law they pay for abortions. These states, some of them don't have Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, and so they're saying uh, Little Sisters of the Poor won in the Supreme Court under RIFRA, not under the First Amendment. And so now they're having to go back with these states under state law now pushing uh, Little Sisters of the Poor to uh, handle abortions. If they're told they have to provide abortions, they will shut down because they will not provide abortions and we're not we're seeing this it, it, this is expanded beyond the gay rights crowd into progressive secularism as a whole that organizations that do good work if they don't adhere to progressive morality have to be shut down and what's so interesting is it comes at a time Where in progressive morality, what we're seeing in major progressive cities like Austin, Texas, and Los Angeles, and San Francisco, and now, frankly, even Atlanta, Georgia, uh, homelessness is treated as a choice that is not to be cured. Uh, you're, You're to let the homeless be homeless. It's an abdication of responsibility. Now, if you're actually – if you're a person of faith, let's delve into the Old Testament. There, there are more people who uh, share Old Testament values, whether, whether you're Christian, Muslim, Jewish. Uh, a lot of it is derived from the Old Testament sense. And, and what does it say? Take care of the widows, the orphans, the poor, the refugee. You could say the homeless in there as well and uh, you see these Christian charitable groups committed to doing that even the Salvation Army you can add into this list and what you're finding is that progressive secular groups, they don't care Fortune 500 companies don't care about the good work that these companies are doing so long as they do not adhere to sexual ethics from the left these these organizations are considered bad they can't just live and let live for years we've been told we got to have tolerance we got to show diversity, we got to respect each other's differences but here come this group with this outmoded outdated Biblical sexual ethic they've had for 2,000 years They refuse to change and by God The country's going to make them grow up Or shut them down We see that with with Bloomberg One of the things Bloomberg has said He's been deeply derogatory to people of faith Bloomberg says there's no rational reason For someone to not support abortion rights We see this in the Democratic Party Where every single Democratic candidate says With the exception of Amy Klobuchar There's no place for pro-life Democrats anymore They're shutting out people of faith. They're shutting down faith-based organizations. They're shutting out people who disagree with them, who are doing good work. There are a lot of nonprofits in this country that are faith-based. The most charitable people in this country are people of faith because regardless of which god they worship, their god tells them to support the poor and give charitably. Evangelical Christians in this country actually give more to charity than rich people in this country give to charity because they have a God who tells them to tithe, to give 10%. You should want those people in society. And what we have now is that the left in this country increasingly views these as something other than humans who should be respected. And that leads to bad things. The left has been so invested in the idea that Donald Trump dehumanizes people that they haven't paid attention to the fact that many Fortune 500 companies and left-wing activists are doing the exact same thing to people of faith in this country. And they are devaluing the charitable work that these groups do. They're punishing people who choose to go to these, the schools run by these organizations because they want a homogenous secular atheist society. Scripture says, and, and you know, I, I look at this stuff and I, I, I see scripture at play and I realize not everyone does, but scripture says the things of this world are at war with the things of God. The things of this world are hostile to the things of, this, of God. And you see that play out here. You see these Fortune 500 companies that are, that are worshipful of the almighty buck that are willing to destroy scholarship programs for poor kids because those poor kids may dare go to a sectarian school. We see progressive governments willing to shut down nonprofits that do good work and ease the burden of the taxpayer because they can't go along with with the secular faith of the age. And this, by the way, is one reason, despite all the the anger and vitriol from the left about evangelicals supporting the president, this is why so many evangelicals will consider supporting the president. So many of them will wind up supporting the president because they understand that the president doesn't necessarily share their faith but that the president is willing to allow them to live their faith in public. The American Constitution, the first part of the First Amendment, says that there won't be a state religion, but everyone is allowed to freely exercise their religion. That that free exercise of their religion means in their daily life, Christians have a doctrine of vocation. They go about their daily lives, and and their job is to glorify God in everything they do. They, They can't not do that. It's part of their faith. And so we are increasingly in this country becoming at odds over whether or not people can actually honor the First Amendment to freely exercise their religion, whether people of faith can have a role in this country. And the Fortune 500 companies out there that worship money, that that are there for a profit, are increasingly aligned against people of faith with secularists, which, again, if you go with the things of the world or are at war with the things of God— at a theological level, it makes perfect sense how Nike can attack the state of Tennessee for protecting faith-based adoption agencies and cheer on the excesses of the Chinese communist regime. I promise uh, I will get out a recipe. I, I really will. You can text recipe to 33777 and make it happen. But, 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 this honestly is is more important, if, if I'm honest— Uh, joining the activist army as we've got some legislative fights that will be coming up where every conservative is going to need to be mobilized uh, against the Speaker of the House and others who are aligning with the Democrats. We're we're going to have to make this happen. Uh, So what you really need to be texting is the word ARMY to 33777. Text the word ARMY to 33777 so that... Uh, you will be prepared when the time comes to rally. Uh, we have killed House Bill 757 that would have created that primary uh, to benefit the Democrats, uh, and you got to keep rallying. you, you got to still be willing to take action, and so I hope you will consider texting the word ARMY to 33777. I don't sell that email list. Uh, you don't get spam advertising off of it. What happens is when there is an action alert, you get an email from me, or a text message from me, uh depending on on it, how expeditiously action needs to be taken. And uh, you stay informed, you become the, the the you become the most informed and influential person in your circle of friends. Now, one thing we may have to blow up is this ridiculous major league baseball postseason that they've announced today. They want to add teams to the postseason and then they want to allow the best teams a reality TV pick of essentially picking who they get to play against, which is the stupidest idea. Um, you know why they're doing this? In all honesty, um, they are doing it because they want to distract from the Astros at this point, that they need to get away from the Astros, that they have a a real need to make sure that no one is paying attention to the fact that um the Astros are in scandal and so they gotta they say, hey, let's do reality TV. Everybody look over here at the shiny object and, and stop talking about the Astros. We got at the Athletic, they've actually got a story that that has blown up uh, the headline. The Astros stole signs electronically in 2017, part of a much broader issue for Major League Baseball. Uh, Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick at at The Athletic. There's a broad story about this era of baseball that is yet to be told. To this point, the public's understanding of sign stealing mostly rests on anonymous secondhand conjecture and finger pointing. But inside the game, there's a belief that is treated by players and staff as fact, that illegal sign stealing, particularly through advanced technology, is everywhere. Is an issue that permeates the whole league. The league has done a very poor job of policing and discouraging it. And so as this blows up, and now four people who were with the Astros in 2017 said the Astros stole signs electronically in real time with the aid of a camera positioned in the outfield, the, the Major League Baseball comes out and says, hey, let's screw up the postseason in ways that make it perfect for reality TV. Come on, people. Come on. For the love of the game, don't be stupid. And, yeah, the Astros, what they did is bad. I've never liked the Astros anyway. It is Eric Erickson here, the phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. My buddy Russ Vogt was on uh, Fox News. He's the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget and went after Pelosi and and Pelosi's silliness on the budget. Uh, Ultimately, the the number one challenge is that
0: Congress needs to come come along and pass these spending reductions. We need them to enact them into law. We're going to do the best we can here in the administration and doing things regulatorily, but these require statutes. Our economic growth numbers rely on infrastructure package. We need a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill that the president has been talking about for three or four years now, and before that, even then. Nancy Pelosi needs to put an infrastructure bill on the floor of the House of Representatives, and that's crucial to our economic growth numbers going forward, as are better trade deals. We can't have trade deals like USMCA sitting on her desk for a year. We need to get forward, get moving with the business of the American people.
1: Amen. Uh, And Pelosi is unwilling to cut. By the way, Nancy Pelosi says that she likes uh, zero baseline budgeting or or some such and, and wants to spend responsibly, and yet she doesn't. Uh, she, they're having a hard time, uh, coming up with, with anything in Congress other than scaremongering the president's budget, uh, which is going to come back to haunt him. I believe, although I got to tell you, I I'm, I'm continuing to believe that the Democrats are just overplaying their hands on so much of the stuff. I, I continue to believe that the Democrats Uh, They thought they had it in the bag. And, you know, the Quinnipiac polling and other polling out there suggests as well that they do. I mean, one of the the most consistent polling trends in this country in the last year is that a majority of self-identified independent voters in this country want to vote against Donald Trump. They don't care who. But I don't think there was ever a real contemplation that Bernie Sanders was going to be their nominee. And I think that shapes things. I mean, just, just consider it as an aside here. This is a, a random tangent, but I assure you it's it's relevant. And, and I don't like to talk about this topic, but uh, we need to talk about this topic because it is relevant. Uh, that would be the Academy Awards. The ratings for the Academy Awards were terrible, terrible, terrible. I mean, more people watched paint dry than watched the Academy Awards on Sunday, which was very similar to watching paint dry. Uh, They had no host. Uh, They had no hope. They had Brad Pitt get up and make a dumb joke about John Bolton not testifying in the Senate. And you, you had a bunch of pandering people standing on stage lecturing all the audience about how bad they are, how terrible they are. That they're they're environmental disasters, they're causing climate change and you got all these people who fly private planes and get in their limos lecturing the rest of us on climate change. The smugness of all of them. And of course you know, it was a it was a low the the, the what Golden Globes went all vegetarian and the Oscars went mostly vegetarian. To, to promote climate change and responsible, responsible eating. In other words, you got to give up your hamburger while they're eating their their steak tartare. They're not cooking it. They're eating the steak raw uh, because if they cook it, it would contribute to global warming. I had steak last night for supper. I even allowed them to make it medium as opposed to well done with ketchup, which I would do at home, but you don't know that. Uh, I, I had a medium filet at McKendrick's, and it was fantastic. And I ate it relishing the fact that somewhere it contributed to global warming. It was making up for the people on Sunday night at the Oscars who were smugly lecturing the rest of us before they got in their private planes and whisked themselves away to some paradise. And, you know, they're they're attacking people today, by the way, for being upset about Parasite. Parasite was the movie that won. It won Best Foreign Language Film and it won Best Film. And there are people upset that it won because of what it symbolized. If you don't know what Parasite is, so Parasite is a is a, I believe it's a Korean movie where this this family of poor people who kind of live in Shantytown realize that they can swindle their way into a rich family's home, and in so doing, they can take over the lives, and and they, they pretend to not be related, and one becomes the English tutor, and one becomes an art tutor, and one becomes the maid, and one becomes the driver. Well, it turns out there's a family living in the basement that these people used to take care of the rich people, and they got thrown out or some such, or one of them did, and so now they take up refuge in the basement. And now there's a, a fight between the poor people over who's going to take over for the rich people. Well, one of the rich people winds up getting killed by the poor people. It's an entire conversation on class and, and the aloofness of the rich and essentially how the poor people need to rise up and, and overtake the rich. And it's done in Korean. It's, it's not an English-language movie. It's the first foreign-language film to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards, which is actually a really big deal. But do you know how the leftists turned this on people? Oh, well— The reason you don't like that movie is because it's in Korean and you're just not good enough and smart enough to read the subtitles. That's right. Subtitle racism. I didn't even know there was such a thing. These people can turn anything into racism. Did you know, by the way, that if you don't cook a McDonald's french fry until it's golden, that it's rather white? Clearly racist. If you undercook the fries at McDonald's, it's racist. Everything is racist these days, people. Everything. And not wanting to watch a foreign film with subtitles makes you a bad racist person. And they wanted to lecture you on that as well. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with the president and the election in 2020. So much of the polling out there has long contemplated a Trump-Biden race. And now you may either get a Trump-Bloomberg race or a Trump-Bernie Sanders race. A Bloomberg race would be interesting in that Bloomberg is an aloof, out-of-touch, smug liberal who ran in New York City and somehow thinks running in New York City and being a billionaire can translate in this country into being president of the United States. i got to tell you something about a lot of billionaires, a, a lot of rich people I know. One day, I want to be a multimillionaire. I want to be a smug rich person, but I have a wife and two kids who, who keep me humble, and we live in Macon, Georgia, which there are not a bunch of, of uh, multimillionaires in, in Macon or billionaires in Macon. It keeps you humble. When you live in New York City among the billionaire and multimillionaire elite, you kind of grow detached from the rest of the public where they can ask you a question like, how much does a gallon of milk cost? You know, I can't tell you how much a gallon of milk costs, in all honesty. It's, it's several dollars. I was at Publix yesterday. By the way, by the way, uh, a shout-out to my local Publix. They heard me on this here program talking about not being able, because we're real Southerners in my house, and so we need the big tubs of Crisco to make biscuits and fry chicken. And at the Publix, you only get the rich people, little white Crisco, where they're like, oh, trans fat, we can't have that. And now it's not trans fat. It, it's just the white people shortening. You know, the white people shortening is like half the size of, of the southern people shortening. Well, the Publix near my house now has the giant vats of shortening. All of the 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 all of the, the rich people, they walk past, and they're aghast that someone actually makes a tub of shortening. It's for me and my fat behind and the biscuits and the buttermilk biscuits my wife and kid make and, and the shortening and the pie crust. I need the big tubs of shortening, and praise God Publix has saved me. I don't have to go to the Kroger that thinks it's a Walmart and get lost trying to find shortening. I can just go to the Publix now. Thank you, Publix. They did it because they heard me talking about it on this program. Nonetheless, I digress. The thing here is these people – I mean, Mayor Bloomberg wants to lecture you on – if he knew the size of uh, the tubs of Crisco that I get from the store, he would be appalled and have me thrown in jail. This is a man who decided to ban the Big Gulp in New York and you get all these rich people together and they, they, the rich people are weird, man. Y'all. I, I know rich people. I know a couple of billionaires. In fact, I know a billionaire who owns an entire floor of a skyscraper in New York city and it's his home and he can look down the and he's a wonderful, wonderful person and he's self-made. So he still has that level of connection, but you also kind of know that he, he's not really connected anymore. Because he can leave his house and go out a back entrance where a black sedan or SUV picks him up and takes him to an airport in Westchester, New York, where he can get on a plane that is his plane and he can fly to his other house. He doesn't have to go through even the the, the clear line at at LaGuardia to, to mingle with the average person. Now, you get, you get Bloomberg out there doing this. I can't tell you what the price of a gallon of milk is. It's several dollars, and I bought one. I, I actually bought two gallons the other day. Why? Because they don't expire until the 24th, and I got two kids who are just consuming. I'm, I'm at the point now where I got to buy two loaves of bread and two gallons of milk every week because I got an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old who are starting to eat me out of house and home. And the billionaire has no idea because he's got a maid and a cook to take care of this for him. And, Lord, they ain't eating carbs. He's got a dietitian in there. And he gets out on the campaign trail and he tries to pretend to be an ordinary person. And do you know, for the love of God, do you know what the billionaire does on the campaign trail to make themselves look ordinary? They go out and what's the first thing they buy? Boots. Because, you know... Those ordinary people out in the countryside, they wear boots, and they refer to them as poop kickers, but they don't say poop. And as as Rick Perry one time pointed out to me, you can tell that these people have newly found their, their, their countryness because their boots have no scuffs. As Rick Perry says, never trust someone who wears boots without scuffs. Because they've gone out and they've gone and gotten their slick boots. And inevitably it's some Swiss brand, not a Texas brand. And then they get out on the campaign trail and they say the most bizarre things. Like this morning over my quinoa and chicken omelet, we were discussing how you people, not y'all, you people are falling behind in the Trump economy. For example... Did you know that you may have to go work at some store called Delards, where they sell clothes? And if you really wanted to make money, you would go to Bergdorf Goodman in New York City to make money instead of someplace called Delards. They have no idea what they're talking about. And they try their best to relate to you. And you know how else they relate to you? They go to fast food restaurants. And they order fast food. You know who authentically orders fast food? Donald Trump. Donald Trump loves fast food. Remember the outrage of the media when Donald Trump put in, uh, bought fast food from Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, and Domino's for the the uh, basketball players who were coming to the White House. They were horrified by this. My lord, Mike Bloomberg. The thought of going to a fast food restaurant and seeing all you can drink Coca Cola products out there. You have direct access to the vending machine and a big gulp cup. Uh, the man's gonna pass out. And yet the Democrats are now convinced that because Biden is, fitting. say what you will about uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden has an incredible story. His wife and child died in a fiery car wreck. He remarried Jill Biden. She raised his children as, his, as her own. He's got a tragic story. His is not really a story of privilege, although he basically was raised by the wolves of the Senate, uh, Ted Kennedy and Chris Dodd. But it, but he's got a story that relates to people. Uh, Bloomberg can give you the 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 all you all you can handle man of the people raised himself up by his bootstraps. Although Alexandria Ocasio Cortez tells us we can't actually do that. But but Bloomberg has this story that's relatable. But Bloomberg gets on his his private jet every weekend and goes to his private island of the Bahamas. That's so relatable to people. Now, listen, people who don't relate can get elected. Let, let's let's not kid ourselves. People who can't relate actually can get elected. What's just kind of funny is that Donald Trump actually connects to people and the Democrats are convinced he's not actually relatable. You hear this from Democrats all the time. They think you hicks and rubes who like Donald Trump are, are being fooled by this guy who's just doing his impression of you that. No, Donald Trump. I listen. I, I've been in the man's office. The man really has a thing for Wendy's. He really has a thing for Wendy's, and the left is convinced it's all an act to to be a man of the people thing, that Donald Trump really can't relate to you. No, no, he actually can because Donald Trump has always prided himself in being this kind of man of the people in New York. He he built the ice rink and stuff. What, What did Bloomberg do? Bloomberg made billions, and God bless him. He made billions. He's not a bad man for making billions. It's just he now put himself in a bubble where he cannot relate to anyone. He goes out and sees pizza at the county fair, and and he needs a fork and a knife to eat the pizza. He doesn't know to fold, fold the crust. Except they've told him this, so he comes in and he makes a big deal about knowing how to fold the crust, and he folds the crust and can't actually eat it because he can't figure out how to put it in his mouth because he doesn't have the fork and the knife, and it kind of shows that, that he's all he's all made up. Can you imagine Mike Bloomberg? I think that's why he skipped Iowa. He did not want to go to Ames, Iowa and have the fried Twinkie after banning fast food in New York City. Can you imagine Mike Bloomberg getting a fried Twinkie on a stick or a fried a Three Musketeer bar and what on earth he would do with it? He He would start lecturing the people on how they're going to die of heart disease and how he was going to ban it. And he would have lost Iowa. So he can campaign in California because he can relate to the elite in California. He can actually say quinoa. I mean, I look at it as like this looks like it's pronounced quinoa. No, no, it's quinoa. It's pronounced quinoa. It is Q-U-I-N-O-A. Quinoa, my butt. And kale. Quinoa and kale. And I guess if you like quinoa and kale, Mike Bloomberg is going to be the candidate for you. But they lecture us at the Oscars about how we're all a bunch of hicks and rubes because we don't want to read while we watch a movie because of subtitles. They lecture us on carbon neutrality while they get on their airplanes and fly away. And now they want to tell us that we need to vote for... Some person who's completely out of touch with the American experience and the American people, but, oh, my God, he's a self-made man, and we should all like self-made men. And, you know, we do like self-made men, but I got plenty of billionaire friends who are self-made men who have no relationship to, to me and the world around. It's just bizarre, and these people don't need to set public policy. But they want to get Trump. They want to beat Trump. They think Bloomberg's got the billions to beat Trump. But does he actually have what it takes? Because Mike Bloomberg can run slick ad campaigns. Bernie Sanders can run slick ad campaigns. But at the end of the day, when you're on the campaign trail and you're interacting with people, are you actually relatable? Now, for some Democrats, it doesn't matter. They just want to beat Trump. They don't care how relatable or not. Uh, they, they, They would vote for Ralph Northam in blackface over Donald Trump. But the Democrats are going to do that. It's the swing voter. You know the latest thing the Democrats are doing? They're convincing themselves that there is no swing voter. They've got a a partisan left-wing activist named Rachel somebody or other who claims that she's all about the data and she's not actually partisan. She's one of the most predictable partisans ever who says there really are no swing voters anymore. You know, good for the Democrats to convince themselves there are no swing voters anymore. You should go to The Resurgent every day, although I didn't write today. I was in Atlanta last night and had a late dinner and never got around to it. But I, I do – just as a word of caution to you, you know one of the big things now on the right is there is a – there there's a rush to decide that they should jump into the Democratic primary and vote for uh, Bernie Sanders to help Bernie Sanders out. And I, I got I to gotta tell you, I think that's a problem. You know, Hillary Clinton did that, her campaign did that to try to hurt Republicans and and get Donald Trump the nomination because they were convinced and all the polling showed that Donald Trump would be the easiest Republican to beat and uh, my goodness, it turned out badly for them. And I think Republicans need to be careful about uh, uh, about wading into primaries on the other side, let them pick their candidate who they think is best, uh, why pick for them? You're smarter than them, don't 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 go help them. Meanwhile, out on the campaign trail, uh, I wanna play this Elizabeth Warren audio real quick.
4: And I think that the way that we beat Donald Trump is how we remember he's the enemy, right? He's the guy who's out there undercutting every democratic value, undercutting economic security for hardworking people. We need to remember that that's the direction we're heading. And we also need to remember a country that elected a man like Donald Trump is a country that was already in trouble.
1: Can you imagine if Donald Trump on the campaign trail called Elizabeth Warren the enemy? Can you imagine what would happen? And see, this gets uh, – it. I, I, I promise you I didn't plan this hour to be thematic, uh, but but it is to some degree. The, the smug contentions and hypocrisies of the left, even in the media, where they will stand on a stage and lecture us. Uh, they will cast aspersions at you because you don't like their movie that has subtitles. You don't want to go read at the movie theater. And, and then they'll call your side the enemy. They'll call Donald Trump the enemy. But they would lecture you if you dare do it. I mean, look at the coverage, for God's sakes, of, of the guy in the van in Florida who ran into the voter registration booths uh, in his van uh, trying to, to take out people who were doing voter registration. The media did not cover it. The, the media did not give that the coverage they would if it was a white nationalist or a Trump supporter or anyone like that doing it to someone on the left. They, they did not cover it. They will not cover Elizabeth Warren on the enemy, and they will try to apologize for and cover up all of little uh, Mike Bloomberg's slights on uh, that show just how detached he is from the American public because the media is on a team, and it's not your team. And we just all need to be mindful of that moving forward as we head into campaign season as New Hampshire votes today.